0: I'm just I'm transfixed by your um your books. You've got a really nice bookshelf there.
1: Thank you. Yeah, it's all it's all real. Um I actually rented it from a startup called Renta Renta Pac <laughs> <laughs> around in the pandemic. So I've just had it since. Oh, that's perfect. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So many so many, so many damn books.
0: Welcome to so many damn books. I am Christopher. I'm Drew. And we have Matteo Ascaparor in the well, in the Zoomiverse of the damn <laughs> library. Um Matteo is a writer uh living in Brooklyn, living really close actually. I, I walked over in less than 10 minutes. Um he was a 2018 Rhode Island Writer's Colony Writer in Residence, and his writing has appeared in Entrepreneur, Lit Hub, Catapult, The Rumpus, Medium, and elsewhere. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter, on Instagram, at Ask Mateo, and uh, says that your work aims to empower people of color to seize opportunities for advancement no matter the obstacle. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp.
2: I don't know about you, Christopher, but the last year has been kind of a difficult one. I felt like there have been things interfering with happiness. My goals have kind of gone out the window. Uh, And therapy, honestly, has been one of the best things that I ever have done for myself over the course of the last year.
0: I feel like there's a barrier to entry to therapy that's even larger. Right now, because it's just like, I don't want to go to therapy. I don't want to go to any office at all. <laughs> so BetterHelp is here to sort of as a solution to this. And you don't have to go anywhere. You can do it all virtually. It's all online. And it's not a crisis line. It's not like a self-help thing. It's professional counseling, and it's done securely online.
2: It's great, too. There's a huge range of expertise available which is particularly great for folks who maybe don't have a ton of locally available options even during non-pandemic times. You'll be matched with a licensed professional therapist who will be able to work with you directly. And BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches. Um, And so also, if you don't like the person or if it's not a good fit, it's easy to change counselors if you need to.
0: And it's also available worldwide.
2: There's uh, some financial aid available too. It's also much more affordable than traditional therapy and counseling. Um, it's it's really terrific. You can go to the BetterHelp website and read testimonials, um, or you can just check out BetterHelp.com/smdb. That's Better H-E-L-P com slash SMDB. And you can join over a million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional.
0: And if you do go to the um, betterhelp.com slash SMDB, you do get 10% off your first month. So that's pretty cool.
2: It's pretty cool.
0: And uh, you're the author of Black Buck, which is like about okay. that. Very so, <laughs> happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so glad coming, we man. could have you uh, so close to the release of your book.
1: How you feeling? Oh, uh, I'm feeling good right now. Um, the last two days, I've gotten, I believe, six to seven hours of sleep, which is more than uh, the rest of the week. And okay. I'm just, I'm just so happy by the blazing welcome of the book. Um, I know we'll probably get into it, but. It's just resonating with people in such a deep way that I hoped for. So I'm thrilled about it. That's great. That's awesome.
0: The The cover of the book is um, a, a black hand holding a black buck on a coffee cup. And so I felt like I had to make a coffee drink um, to, uh, to enjoy while we recorded here. And um, there's this... Coffee shop that I really loved in San Francisco when I lived there called Phil's with a Z, mm-hmm. and they make this uh, mojito coffee. And I thought I would try my hand at um, making making one at home. And so this is just it's um, an ounce of demerara simple syrup and uh, ten to fifteen fresh mint leaves, and you muddle those really gently so they don't break apart and get into your straw. Um, <laughs> and then six ounces of like really really strong coffee, and um, you just mix that together. I put a little bit of oat milk in mine because mm. I like that. And, uh, sh- you know, I think it's best over ice and I'm calling the drink Always Be Coffeeing, mm. the ABCs. Um,
1: <laughs> I like it.
0: Even if, even the coffee I suppose is for closers, it can also be for readers.
1: <laughs> That's right, I and mean, for this drink. I, uh, I didn't take a sip yet. I want to take a sip live. Um, for me, this is somewhat like Darren when he's with Rhett and Rhett hands him that cup of coffee because I actually am poor coffee, but I don't oh want to no. say anything. No, 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 I didn't want to say anything on purpose. I wanted to see what you came up with. I see I see Drew biting his finger. Uh, <laughs> I wanted to see what you came up with just so I could taste it. And okay. he said it was going to be strong as hell. Now, I didn't muddle these mint leaves and it's not over ice, it's, it's lukewarm, <laughs> but I'm about to take this sip. This is really just like in the book. Oh so, no. Okay. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> it's, better, it's better than the other times, the other like four times I've coffee in my life. So thank you. I taste a simple syrup. Uh, yeah, okay. Nice. And I don't know what Demerara or whatever you said. That sounds like some Demogorgon from Stranger Things, but <laughs> um, <laughs> this is better than this is better than what I anticipated. And I know I'm about to start tweaking on it. So thank you. <laughs> oh, I,
0: I would have, that's why I said coffee at the, well,
1: all right. No nah, man, I wanted to see <laughs> what you came up with, and okay. uh, I, right. I am I am pleased. Thank you.
2: Yeah, I like that. I appreciate the like the like. Okay, yeah, <laughs> show me something.
1: <laughs> exactly, that's what it is, and this is your show. I I know that I'm your guest, and then it's someone about me, but it's not all about me. It's about so many damn books. Yes. So uh, I wanted to see uh, what you came up with. Oh. Oh.
0: But before we get into your book, um, I really want to talk about it. But first, we always talk about what you buy. Oh, yes. Drew, do you want to start?
2: Sure. I have two uh, lit mag type things that are my what you buy. I feel like recently I've been wanting to either subscribe to like neat little press um, limited edition kinds of things or just checking out lit mags as I feel like I'm Starting to inch closer and closer to having stories that I want to start submitting, places it's like, oh, I should actually get a sense of these things. Mm-hmm. So the lit mag is called Black Telephone, and it's out from Clash Books, um, and I it, it's one of those things that like it came across my Instagram feed because it's beautifully designed. The first batch of orders they were sending out with incense, and it just mm-hmm. got kind of like a cool, spooky vibe to it. Um, and I was reading, there's some stories in there by authors who I know and I, I admire and I was like, yeah, all right, I'm going to check this out. Mm-hmm. Um, the incense smells great. I haven't cracked open the issue yet. Uh, <laughs> but then the other, the other thing is the second issue from breaking and entering lit mag who I've talked about on the show a couple of times. Um, they are edited by a J David Gonzalez, uh, out of Skylight Books in Los Angeles, the, their first issue came out right before the pandemic hit, and it was a Eugene Lim short story, an excerpt from his forthcoming novel. Uh, pandemic hit, things were kind of crazy, but the second issue just came out. It's I think actually sitting in my mailbox right now. Uh, it's called Zona, Z O apostrophe O N A. And it's a short story by Namwali Serpell, um, oh. who wrote The, the Old Drift. that was out last year or two years ago. Um, and again, it's just like, it's got a beautiful cover. It's a neat little chapbook about one story sized. Uh, I'm very jazzed to get around to it.
0: I remember them being very excited that we compared them to one story on the show
1: because they're like, "That's
2: that was our inspiration.
1: <laughs> I, I think it's sweet. Uh, Mateo? Yes, sir. Um, so... Uh, I'm going to discuss two recent purchases. One is a book called Iced by a man named Ray Shell, And one of my um, literary friends, Michael Gonzalez, um, had written a piece about Ray Shell and his, uh, I believe, debut novel, which came out in 1993. And it's about um, one man's descent into being a crack addict. Oh, and wow. um It's been compared to Junkie by William S. Burroughs and and, and those types of books where you see an addict uh, descending into addiction. But what spoke most to me about this book, um, and I haven't read it yet, was the synopsis is uh, basically about a man um, named Cornelius Washington Jr. um, who I believe came from um, the world of, of middle class, you know, black bourgeoisie in a sense. And he found himself, you know, at one point being a crack addict. And those types of stories speak to me deeply where you see the arc of someone descending um, into a world that has maybe had some proximity to their own, but they escaped and then still found their way back to. And those stories appeal to me not in some sadistic way because they're very tough to read and get through but more so because you understand that um these types of things someone committing a crime or someone falling into addiction or someone doing something else that society deems to be unsavory um is just one step away from any of us yeah despite where we despite where we come from um, it's also written as a diary And, you know, we're going to get into Black Buck, but it also has that metafictional aspect to it. Cool. Um, And something else that I recently bought is right in front of me and is uh, directly related to this podcast and this moment right now. It's a professional microphone. Um, I've had, I had people who would say, hey, you know, you sound a little muffled. And then I had one interview last week where this guy seemed to be extremely (laughs) incensed, to talk about incense, incensed that (laughs) I sounded like. Uh, SpongeBob SquarePants going to the Krusty Krab Underwater. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So I said, enough is enough. I spoke to one of my brothers who, uh, he actually went to school for audio engineering. He gave me a few recommendations. So now we're rocking with this Audio Technica. Um, And here we are in crisp clarity. Awesome.
0: Yeah, we hear you loud and clear.
1: There
2: we go. Christopher, what about you?
0: I got two things. Um, I... I just picked up this book called The Secret Life of Groceries. Um, The Dark Miracle of the American Supermarket is the subtitle. And I'm fascinated by grocery stores. I always thought I might actually enjoy working at one just because like stocking. I used to love that type of stuff when I had different types of jobs. Um, And a grocery store has 15 to 60,000 items in it, which is just a, Insane. And so I'm excited to learn more about, you know, and of course they say dark miracle. So I feel like it's <laughs> going to be actually really depressing. Um, and then I also got this book called All Girls. Um, it comes out in February. Um, St. Martin's Press was good enough to send it to us. And um, they're describing it as the girls, uh, Emma Klein's The Girls meets uh, My Dark Vanessa. And I love a good um this meets that and this one is a campus novel at a new england boarding school and it takes place over the course of a full year um so it's like totally up my alley in so many ways and yeah so i'm very excited to get to it mateo your book also had a really good this meets that yeah on the back of it on the back of black buck Um, for fans of sorry to bother you and the wolf of wall street which two movies (laughs) um and i'm curious how you feel does that capture your book and do you want to tell our listeners in your words not a this meets that what it's about
1: great yeah thank you for the question i also wanted to say that um the last book that i read was Convenience store woman um yeah by sayaka murata um and that (laughs) that was uh very interesting to say the least. And you, you you might enjoy that if you like uh convenience and grocery store tales.
0: I loved uh, that book. Yeah. It's, I mean it's, wow. it, was inc- it was insane. Yeah, oh, so
1: you read it. There you go. Yeah. And I love the letter at the end. Um, at least in the version I have, there was a letter from the author that uh she had published in Lithub, which was a letter to a convenience store and about her relationship with this convenience store. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying relationship in in an abstract way, her real romantic relationship. Um I thought it was great um okay yeah so sorry to bother you meets wolf of wall street i try to keep it as real as possible in all these interviews i've never compared my book to sorry to bother you everyone else does that's <laughs> cool right i actually have a boots riley story where mm-hmm. i had met him at mcnally jackson just randomly cool. when i was gonna a couple days before a pre-screening that one of my brothers got me into for Sorry to Bother You. And this was me a few months in the black book, I'd heard about Sorry to Bother You. And I, I watch uh, movie trailers and, and music videos for a couple hours before every writing session. So when one of my brothers had passed me the trailer for Sorry to Bother You, I intentionally didn't watch it because it was already starting to get me like in a mood of like, I'm writing this story about a black salesman, but they're coming out with this movie. And that is uh, a mindset which is ridiculous and Uh, sometimes apparent in many black and brown creators. It's the scarcity mindset, crabs in a barrel. I have to be the only one, because many of us have been conditioned that you can't have multiple stories related to uh, black or brown people doing sales, right? So when I ran into Boots Riley, I was just like going off. I was like, hey man, uh, I wrote this book, and then I heard about yours, your your movie, and I didn't wanna watch the trailer, because I was like, it's a black man, and I'm writing this book, but then I realized that that's just exactly what I said before. That's just conditioning, and this is what they want us to think and and he looks at me and he he gives me a look of like yo are you okay <laughs> and, and then uh and then he's like hey man this is really random he's like we're all set up in hotels around here uh i could get you maybe into the pre-screening it was really like random what he was saying but i could tell he was like taken aback because i like, ran up on it and <laughs> And then I was like, listen, man, I actually got like a ticket, uh, but thank you. And I look forward to watching your movie. And he's like, cool. Um, so I watched the movie and I thought that it was great. I thought that it was uh, boundary pushing, but Black Buck is not that. Um, Cassius Green, the character of Sorry to Bother You, aside from the fact that there are no horse limbs in my book, you know? <laughs> that's a euphemism, but uh, uh, horse members, um, Cassius Green is just. Uh, a black man who happens to do sales, right? It's not a core part of his identity. It's the same thing with the pursuit of happiness. If we're going with this superficial, um, superficial comparison of a black man picking up a phone, right? Chris Gardner, all praises due and much respect to that man. Um, but he was a man who happened to become a stockbroker to better his life. Whereas I look at black buck um, closer uh, in kind to Wolf of Wall Street, right? Where Jordan Belfort was a salesman. It was embedded into his DNA. You see that. Mm-hmm. Willie Loman, Willie Loman from Death of a Salesman. He was not a good salesman, right? But but he had it in his DNA and that was part of his, his tragedy because he believed that he was an incredible salesman. His family believed that he was an incredible salesman but this man uh, was not. And he was an everyman for many uh, white men at the time because they saw themselves in him and they saw the the unfulfilled potential that I think was um, so closely relatable to the life of people in the 40s and 50s. And so even though there was a good amount of prosperity after World War II. um, And it's the same with Boiler Room. We see these people, um, Ben Affleck, Vin Diesel, um, they are living and breathing sales, right? Same with Glengarry Glenn Ross, but uh, and Wall Street, we could go on and on and on. These are movies where sales is embedded into people's DNA. And that's what I wanted to write. I wanted to redefine the narrative of what it meant to be a salesperson, an American salesperson. And I wanted there to be a black man, a black salesman, no less for America to root for, and at times hate, right? We see that in the book. It's not just something that I think um, makes the book authentic is that even though the book is being written by a protagonist Darren who becomes Buck, he is not always presenting himself and his narrative in the most positive light. He is bearing his flaws. Um, but to to jump into it for our listeners. And yo, Christopher, God damn, this, this coffee is hitting me. Can you tell I'm like <laughs> right now? I feel like I took was NZT from Limitless. Like <laughs> I feel like, like I, I could go across a a, a a high wire right now between two buildings in Manhattan. Anyway. All right. so <laughs> Black buck. That's why I don't drink this. Damn, talking about an addict, right? Like I'm feeling wired. All right. So. Black Buck is about a young black man named Darren um, who lives in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn with his mother and a brownstone. He has his girlfriend. He has his best friend. He has uh, his neighborhood and his neighborhood has him. Now, Darren is working at a Starbucks um, in an office building in midtown Manhattan. And one day, this suave CEO of a startup from the from the 36th floor uh comes down his name is Rhett Daniels some really good looking white man who always says the right thing he's sort of like a Matthew McConaughey uh type character to keep in line with the limitless comparison that I just brought up and um he comes in and he says you know give me my give me my regular drink but for some reason Darren our protagonist says no and Rhett says give me give me Mother, give me my drink now. And Darren sells him on a new drink and Rhett is impressed. So he invites Darren up to the 36th floor and he gives Darren an invitation to join their startup sales team. It's an elite team of of salespeople. Darren reluctantly joins and he soon finds out he's not only the black, the only black, uh, salesperson there. He's the only black person in the entire company. So he goes through hell and back in order to make it to the top. And hell being defined as overt and more passive and almost innocuous racism and a slew of other things, doubt, inhibitions, anxiety. Gets to the top and he says, I have status, I have money, but I don't like being the token black man. So he hatches a plot to help other people of color infiltrate America's tech startup sales teams, redefining what it means to be a minority in the workplace. That's my My Ted talk. (laughs) 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 I'm done. (laughs) That's the book
0: the the company that you make up for for him to start at uh, someone is it's a strange company it feels so much like one of uh, the shows sometimes sponsors uh, BetterHelp mm. and um, I was just curious about the creation of someone and, and their business which is definitely it's a little opaque. Like you're not sure what he's actually selling or what they actually do. Um, and I, I would love to hear about how you were, how you went about creating that.
1: First off, Christopher, you got balls, and I respect it because. I was on another podcast where someone said, we have a sponsor similar to someone, but I'm not gonna say their name. (laughs) (laughs) And and I was like, okay, is it Talkspace? Is it (laughs) BetterHelp? Like we see Michael Phelps all over the New York City subway for Talkspace, right? Um, Someone, which many people don't know, is a company that I actually wanted to build. I had the idea for some, yeah, you see Drew's face. I had the idea for someone in 2012. I was walking around Alphabet City a friend's apartment and that friend um went to therapy and they told me how much therapy helped them but that it took them a while to find the right therapist and I said whoa you know I've never been in therapy I went to a psychologist once when I was like 14 because my mom was like hey like you gotta just you gotta go talk to this dude and like because I was just telling her some crazy stuff (laughs) like sort of (laughs) imagine me like imagine the narrator of the book and me talking to my mom like that when I'm 14, just like about different things, existential things that a 14 year old typically wouldn't be thinking about. She's like, you got to go talk to this dude. I went and I spoke to this dude and I would never go back because it was just weird, you know, and that's not to knock therapy though. Right. It's very necessary and helpful for people, but, Flash forward to 2012, I'm walking around Alphabet City. And I said, you know what? It took my friend a while to find the right therapist. But what if there was a service that connected people around the world, but let's talk about people in the West, right? Or at least in in the States. What if there was a service that connected them to people with different faiths in different countries that could reach them in different ways that Western trained psychologists or therapists won't be able to, right? I had read a, a book by, um, C.G. Young. And he said, the only point of therapy is to reach someone and, and get them to feel better. He said, I don't care if I have to lie. This is young, right? Um, he said, I don't care if I have to lie to them. If I have to make something up, whatever I do in a session, or if I have to interpret their dreams, because he was a proponent of dream therapy. If I have to interpret their dreams in a fantastical way to relieve them of their issues, then I will. So I said, what if we did an Uber type thing where these people don't even have to be certified? I know it was crazy and we see what happens in the book. They don't (laughs) even have to be certified, but they could be Jewish. They could be Muslim. They could be Hindu, right? They have different spiritual beliefs or they they might not even be religious, but just different philosophical beliefs and could rent their time for a fee, just like Uber or gig economy type things to an end user. So (laughs) I built this company out on paper. I had, I had ideas, I had a pitch, I, I bought the domain and everything. And then when it came time uh, for me to actually do it, right when I quit my job um, in 2016, when I was working at a startup, I said, I don't wanna do this. I don't wanna do anything with startups really, at least in this same way, I was, I was burned out. And at that time, I, I knew that I wanted to be a writer. Um, so when it came time to write Black Buck, after two manuscripts that never went anywhere, and this was January 2018, I said, why don't I just build this company in the book? Now, like we see what happens in the book. And so many people are like, this company, someone's ridiculous. Who would actually do that? And when they say that, I'm like, yeah, who would do that? So it's like, like, this company will never be in existence. Um, But I really, in earnest, thought that it would be um, a valuable and unique um, option for people who don't want things that, are intentionally clinical. So that's how I came up with someone, um, the idea of it itself. And while, um, again, to keep it real, while parts of it were inspired by my own experience, it is a different workplace than the one that I worked in, even though it's set in the same exact building. I set in the same, <laughs> building. I
2: in the same <laughs> building. I love hearing about the ways in which like life ends up filtering into people's books. What came first for you, the idea of Darren and the black salesman or the structure of the story? Because there's an interesting structure to this story. It's being Mm -hmm. told kind of like a memoir, kind of like a self-help book that as the story goes on, we start to see the cracks fall away a little bit and like, oh, this is Mm -hmm. the reality by the time we get to the end. Which of, which of those things
1: came first or did they come at the same time? Yeah, it. the idea came first because after I had um, written those two manuscripts, I wrote those two manuscripts over the course of like a year um, and they were completely different than this. They were actually more like young adult. After mm-hmm. I had written those, um, I was in, I'm not gonna say a dark place because uh, that would um, minimize the dark places that people can actually go to. Um, but I was in a place where for the first time in a long time, I had serious self doubt and I was questioning my intentions and my self belief that I could be someone who would go from the world of sales and startups without an MFA or anything like that to then be a writer. Um, the industry that I was trying to break into, um, I was constantly being fed things like, you have to be a certain way, you have to write a certain way, you have to go to the right school, you have to do X, Y, Z, or have the right connections. Um, You have to read certain things. And I was trying those things, but it wasn't working. So I said, what's going on? And funnily enough, I read a book that I'm sure both of you have read, or if not, you know about it, and that many um, creative people, not just writers, eventually find. And it was on writing by Stephen King and Stephen King spoke in a way that resonated with me. It was not esoteric. It was not highbrow. It was very direct and no nonsense. And a couple of things resonated with me in that book. First and foremost, him saying, listen, the way that I write all these books that turn into movies and people love is I just create a scenario and get my characters into them. And then over the course of a couple hundred pages, figure out how to get them out or I don't get them out. And I said, well, okay, that's, that's like simple enough, at least in my mind now, And in, instead of thinking about having to do all of these things, even though <laughs> we see in Black Buck, I am juggling a shit ton. Um, and then the second is that, and apologies if you hear something in the background, they're like laying track. <laughs> that sounds like such an old term. They're laying track <laughs> outside of my uh, apartment. But the second thing is that he said, the best way to become a better writer is to write more and read more. And I said, simple enough, Steve, I am going (laughs) to consume as much art as possible. Um, I am going to read a lot. I'm gonna go to as many readings as possible. Even though I wasn't living in the city at this point, I'd moved back to my parents' home on purpose. I'm going to go to plays. I'm going to go to concerts. I'm going to watch documentaries I'm, and I'm going to try to be discerning to a certain extent. in what I consume because we only have so much time and you know, I don't want to consume things that will be to my detriment, but I did try to remain as open-minded as possible. So it was after reading uh, on writing that I said, Whoa, why don't I just, why don't, why have I been shying away from things that are so close to my life, namely sales, startups and race things that i was still trying to process from my own um biography uh, of having worked at this startup and having risen so quickly similarly to darren in a way um that people who aren't familiar with the world of startups think that thing is absurd but in the course of like three and a half years i was promoted like four or five times i went from being an intern to being a director of sales development at 24 managing 30 people making over 100k like that is factual in terms of my biography. So I said, Why, why have I not been running towards these themes? And I said, What if I made, what if I wrote a book about an elite group of black salespeople who just ended up blowing up a bunch of shit, like uh, Fight Club? And then by the time it came time for me to actually write the book in January, the idea had been refined. My goals had been clarified. And I had had so many conversations with myself that I, I knew with no uncertainty that I first wanted to write for myself. I wanted to write a book that I would read. I wanted to write a book that would be interesting enough to captivate me over the course of a couple hundred pages, no matter which turns the book would take. And secondly, I wanted to uh, serve a specific group of people Black people who have been in these uh, white majority environments, whether professionally or personally, um, and then extending that to other people of color, as we see in my bio that was written on purpose in that way, and then extending to anyone based on sexual orientation, gender expression, religion, or race, who have been the only one in the scenario. I believe, and I've already received messages from people. I received messages, weirdly enough, from like 65-plus-year-old white women. Like, I've received two in the past two days who say, wow, this book really spoke to me. And I say, thanks, Kathy. I'm so happy because I did, because I wanted to live beyond the people I even had in mind intentionally. I did. I'm not here saying I didn't want other people to read it. I certainly did, but I just had to be clear on my intentions. So that's a long way of answering your question, Drew, of the idea came first. And then that first night I wrote uh, the author's note. I don't even write at night. I write during the day, but it was like, I was imbued with some divine shit and I banged out that author's note. I had my, um, I had a friend over at my parents' house and uh, I, I called her into the room that I was in because she was in my my younger brother's room because he was gone. He was out of the country and I read it to her and she said, did you just write that? I said, yes. And to today, that author's note has been largely unchanged. to To wrap up my answer to this question, that first night when I wrote the author's note, I knew that I wanted it to not just be an engaging narrative, but also double as a sales manual. But it wasn't until nine, 10 months later that I actually began breaking the fourth wall and inserted all of those bolded readers. And Mm -hmm. that inspiration came from a few other places, but um, I've been talking your ear off.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I love hearing that. I mean, it's like, it's the power of fiction, right? To be Mm -hmm. like the empathy that comes from, the, like Stephen King says in on writing, he's like, mm. he describes the table with the red tablecloth and you see it in your head and it's like, how do I do that? It's ma- yes. it feels like magic. Um, and I love a, a different version of the question that I had been thinking about asking you was like, did you ever think about writing this as nonfiction? And it's so, it feels like it's so much more powerful because it is fiction yes. because then, then it does like you can get that back door into the 65 year old white lady who would never pick this up if it was nonfiction.
1: Exactly. Yeah. So for me, and I I read this or heard this once that fiction acts as a simulation for us to experience lives that are not our own. And it can help us, as you said, develop empathy for other people. Now that's dangerous in that 65 year old white woman could read this book and say, I'm Darren, you're not Darren. But uh, but for you to understand uh, Darren and people like him and even Clyde and those people who you also are not um, is important and and helpful. Um, The reason why I didn't write it as nonfiction is I don't think that I would have been able to achieve the aims that I set out of writing something that would impact people deeply if it was so entrenched in my own experience. I don't know if I would have been able to get outside of my own experience in a way to write at a distance Mm. that would be easily accessible to other people. So that's why I didn't write it as nonfiction. Um, Two is that writing it in fiction just gave me so much more freedom to have fun. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like riff on things. And it was also important for me though, and we may touch on satire later. I didn't intend to write this as a satire. I didn't. I, I intended to write it earnestly while knowing there were satirical and most definitely absurd elements in there. But I wasn't like, let me write the sellout. The sellout helped me understand what fiction can do. But I, when I I set out to write this, and some people are surprised, I wrote it very earnestly while also having a shit ton of fun. Um, But I bring that up to say, even though it's fiction, and even though part of my life story is most definitely in it and and inspired by uh, certain events that I either uh, transmuted into the world of someone in Darren's life or put in directly, even though there's not a lot of that. um, It was important for me to tell something that felt honest to myself, to the people I wanted to resonate with and to this nation that we live in. So just because it's fiction, I don't hide behind it. I do not hide and say, Oh, well just Darren, Darren said it. I didn't say it. Sometimes Darren did do and say things that I definitely wouldn't do but I'm not trying to hide behind the label of fiction. And I most definitely, I'm not trying to hide behind the label of satire. Mm. That would be untrue for me to say, it's just satire, chill right. out. You
0: know? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, life is so absurd um, that especially these days that I feel like sometimes when you're just writing it down and like reflecting it back to people, I think that's the first time that people realize how absurd things have gotten. Yep. So they read some stuff like this and they're like, oh, this is satire. This is absurd. This is crazy. It's like, no, that's literally just regular details of life. Exactly. That's where we are now. Yeah, I'm curious, you were mentioned, talking about therapy and you're also talking about how this book sort of helped you move through some of your own thoughts. And I'm curious about writing as therapy and if this was therapeutic to get through.
1: Well, it most definitely was. And I know that some people hesitate to say that because again, part of the uh, entrenched advice is do not view writing as therapy. No one needs to read hundreds of pages of a therapy session. And this wasn't like a long ass therapy session for me, but a byproduct of having written and gone so um, into, into such detail and having had to mine my mind and my emotional, um, my emotional space for so much of what's in the book was therapeutic. And there were times when I was just like laughing and then there were times there was like one or two times when I probably cried a little bit and I was like, Oh, this shit is, this shit's hitting, you know? <laughs> um, and then there are other times when I just finished a chapter and um, you know, without giving spoilers to the listeners, a, a chapter related to people in bed I will say where Darren did some bad things. I was like, damn, that was hard to write. There was, there was one or two times, I'm not, I'm not gonna say for most of the book, but there are one or two times after a chapter when I said that was hard to write. And it was hard emotionally to get it out, but that's a good thing because I think it'll resonate with readers. And to me, I worked at a startup. I have a business background for sure, but I'm also someone who loves statistics. Um, and for me, the uh, one of the main um, things that folks have been saying in terms of reviews, and I, I don't really re- read reviews anymore that much. But before that book came out, I read the 100 plus Goodreads reviews, and the median feeling or answer um, that a lot of people had in terms of the book was like, Yes, these couple parts were extremely difficult to get through, and those couple parts were the ones that were extremely difficult for me to write. So it's cool to see that it resonated. So deeply in the same way for so many people, it's like this magical connection, this line between me and the reader.
0: Yeah. Mm. Can you talk about what kind of reader you are? You know, yeah. how do you choose your books, and and do you read a bunch at a time, or?
1: Yeah, I'm a I'm a one book type of person. Um, I like to. It's just like it's the same thing about writing. If I'm if we're talking about a novel, I don't like to work on multiple novels. Today, um, I do have to work on a few things at once but i'm doing my best to just like block out time to focus on one thing and then if it's like an essay or QA, then i'll finish it then that same day Mm -hmm. um and then go back and and review it and and revise and things like that but i am a, a one book type of reader and i am extremely discerning in terms of the books that i buy and in terms of the books that i read um I'm aware like many of us that we're not going to be able to read all the books that we want. And like reading a bad book for me is like spending a thousand dollars. I've never done this, but spending a thousand dollars on a bad meal. It's (laughs) just like, Oh, it
0: hurts.
1: It hurts your wallet. (laughs) It hurts your spirit. And if it's a bad meal, it might hurt your stomach. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, um, I'm extremely discerning and I read a lot of old books and this book iced. It's not even, it wouldn't even be considered that old to me. It's from 1993 but we're going to talk about the spook who sat by the door, right? Which I believe is from 1969. Yeah. I read a book last year from like 1899. Um, the conjure, the conjure man or, or the conjure woman and conjured tales, um, the conjure woman. Yeah. And other conjured tales, uh, by Charles chestnut. That's from like 1899. And that was uh, definitely an old book. So I read older books, but I also do my best to read books that have come out in the last few years and, um, honestly, I try not to read books that are being like hyped up a lot in that moment because I want distance, but sometimes mm. I do break that rule, especially if I really want to support that author and I want to learn more about their journey at this point in time, someone being the book right behind me, The Prophets by Robert Jones Jr. Yeah, Robert Jones Jr., um, his book came out the same day as Black Buck and, maybe a month or a few weeks before our books came out, we, we began a dialogue with one another and we speak almost every day or every other day. And yeah, it's cool, right? He, um, he has been someone who I can lean on and someone who I don't have to put up the front when people say, you know, and, and I didn't really put up a front for you when you asked this question initially, cause I told you how I felt in the moment, but sometimes when people ask, how do you feel? They're asking, do you feel how I would feel in that moment? And with him, I can break it down a little bit and be like, brother, this is incredible. Like weeks ago we were both like, oh, it'd be great if we hit the New York times bestseller list and we were both on there and it'd be great. Right. Um, and then we hit, and then he's like, how do you feel? And I was like, man, I feel good, but I'm also like really tired. Like, <laughs> honestly, I feel more exhausted and happy right now. This is something that I wanted, but this isn't also the end all be all of what I wanted. Um, so yeah, that's the type of reader I am. Um, I'm not someone who reads, uh, the same book multiple times. I do want to get better at that. I've read a few books multiple times, one being specimen days by Michael Cunningham, um, or leaves of grass by Walt Whitman, just books that affected me so deeply at a certain point in time that I was like, yeah, I want to read that again. So I do want to get better at rereading books, but again, um, we only have so much time and Mm -hmm. I got to get these, I got to get these fresh reads in. (laughs)
0: So true Yeah.
1: Speaking of, I mean,
2: fresh reads So you brought us uh, The Spook Who Sat By The Door By Sam Greenlee And I think The way I want to get into talking about it Is to acknowledge That I I say this all the time on this show It's one of my favorite things about doing this That book and your book are like inextricably tied, like in exactly. a wonderful way that the two of them informed each other. Mm-hmm. Um, in Black Buck, Darren starts using his power for good, essentially in, in create. I like that you, uh, earlier you referenced like the fight club side of things. Cause it does feel like that at times. Like, yeah, yeah you feel like, okay. What's, like, where is this going to go? And kind of wonderfully, Spook Who Sat By The Door is, like, the dark fight club version of Mm -hmm. the same idea. Mm -hmm. And so I'd love to know why you recommended the book to us and and what you love about it.
1: Well, I recommended this book because I only read it last year in, like, August. so No shit! Yo, so long after like, I had written Black Buck and we'd, we'd finished it, the copy editing was done, the proofreading was done, and I read this and I said, holy shit. <laughs> I said, no way, no way, in the best way. Not like what I was talking about, Sorry to Bother You, when I was riffing on, uh, when I was riffing on Boots Riley. But I was like, yo, Sam, Mr. Greenlee, yo, I wrote a book in the same exact vein." But like 50 years removed or so, right? Maybe mm-hmm. more. Um, and wow, it was it floored me just as I was reading the book, and especially when I finished it, because things have changed, but so much hasn't. Yeah. And there's so much more work to do. And I felt as though I was continuing in the tradition of Sam Greenlee and so many other writers from back in the day who were um trying to buck the system in a way that was explosive, but also humorous, Mm
2: -hmm. because
1: when I wrote Black Buck, I didn't want to write 400 pages of doom and gloom and tragedy and trauma. It's definitely in there, but that does not just define the world that we live in and that does not just define the black experience. The black experience, and I'm not gonna sit here and tell you what it's like, because I can only speak for myself and for the people I know but for myself and many of the people I know, and I would dare say Sam Greenlee, um, so much of it is humorous and absurd, especially as it relates to racism. A lot of it is just like, you're like, what? Come on, bro. Like You see <laughs> these white dudes at the Capitol and they sound like they, they just watched Braveheart. <laughs> like, it's funny. <laughs> you know? It's like actually funny. You're like, what are you doing? Even though it is dangerous and scary at the same time. Um, but, but within our experience is so much love and joy and it's not always just making the the most out of a bad situation but it's about having fun um and, and just having a certain zeal for life so i read this book and i felt all of that and the plot itself though was just i said yo this is this is not black buck one for one um but it is so close you have this this man who um who is a lot more with it than Darren when he first starts working at some, <laughs> This guy knows who he is, he knows that he is the token, he knows that he eventually wants to take um, the skills that he gains at the CIA and being the spook who sat by the door, right? For a history lesson for, for listeners is, the spook who sat by the door has many meaning, meanings just like the title of Black Buck. And that spoke to me too, um, because the title for Black Buck is something that comes up a lot that is provocative or contentious and people wanna get into it. Um, the spook who sat by a door, again, for listeners, has many meanings. One being spook is a derogatory term for Black people that has been used throughout history. Two is it's a term that was used for people who work in the CIA, a spook. Three is that uh, for these diversity hires that we call them today or affirmative action hires, uh, when they would be hired back in the day, the 40s, 50s, 60s, more so the 60s and 70s when we had the uh, the Civil Rights Act and um organizations were mandated to diversify their ranks um, if they hired a black or brown person they would put them by the door so even though it might have been extremely white behind the door you would see the token at the front and say ah there's there's a little there's a little diversity there's a little there's a little uh, blending in this coffee if we if we go with that um so the title the explosiveness uh, the satirical elements, the absurdity, the power, the, um, the put on, as he says in the book, he says, you know, a lot of, a lot of these people that he, uh, was working under these white people, the thing that they would hate most is the put on is you just doing this right before their eyes. And that just spoke to me because that's what's going on in black. Muck, man, I could keep going. I know we're going to keep going, but those are just some reasons why I wanted to pick the spook who sat by the door i loved it too because it's i mean it's
2: hard to find right now and like the the book has had a difficult time getting published particularly in the states i I did a bunch of research as i was like why the fuck is it impossible for me to find a copy of this book (laughs) Yeah.
0: yeah it it we were looking it up and we saw that it was like embraced and published first in london um and it it was kind of a huge hit over there but it it keeps getting out of print here. I think mm. only a university press has it out in the yeah. United States now. I actually listened to the audiobook read by Dion Graham. Mm. Ooh, fantastic listening experience. If if, um, if people like audiobooks, it's it's a really, really good one. Mm. Um, Dan Freeman is an incredible character. It's one of my favorite types of characters that, um, can put on a mask really quickly yep. like yeah. they, they just fit he just is this chameleon that fits and wherever he is it's it's one of those things that you know you always want you want yourself yeah. to be like that yeah um, and he's just like a superhero at it like it is his superpower and I loved that um on his name Dan Freeman Freeman it's is perfect
1: it's great uh to 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 I guess discuss a connection that um you just made a couple things well there's a movie that came out for the spook sat by the door i actually mm-hmm. have been saving to watch it for a while like when i feel like i really needed it during this publication process and i'm not there yet where it's like ah, i really need this right now but it's gonna come lee daniels i believe is adapting it um into a series cool. and it's funny because and I don't know if I'm supposed to talk about this stuff, but it doesn't matter, I'm a free man, quote unquote. Um, I actually had spoken with Lee Daniels, I went to his apartment in midtown Manhattan regarding Black Buck, um, and that was a wild experience. And uh, the last connection I'll say is, you brought up Christopher that people in London and England loved the spook who sat by the door. Well, we're in talks with UK publishers for Black Buck right now, but something that uh, they said to us months ago is Black Buck is too American for our audience? And I said, too American. What are you talking about? What do you mean? Do you not know? Do you not know that there are black people that live in, in <laughs> on the black and brown people, and they are experiencing these same things that are going on over here? I mean, they just came out with an incredible series, Industry, which yeah. is very Black Buck esque. Um, and now everyone is saying, oh, whoa, we need this over here. So it's funny that you brought that up, Christopher, because months ago they were saying something differently and I have no qualms about bringing it up because I'm just telling the truth and I can't wait for them to uh, bring black buck over there. So, yeah, Um, that was, that was my side. But in terms of the mask, we see that Darren um, isn't good at putting up a mask. Right. And um, he is very relatable in ways that what is happening to him and around him does get to him Mm -hmm. and he tries not to show it. he does even in the workplace and then we see him having these more honest conversations with his family and especially his girlfriend at one point um and something else that for for readers and especially black readers that i've seen is a duality in terms of of his experience where they say i would never take what darren takes from clyde that would never be me I would have killed Clyde. They say, I would, have, I, would have caught a, I would have caught a body. I've seen people say, I would have caught a body. That workplace would have had to call the cops on me. But then there are other people who understand Darren's experience that I understand so well. And you two probably understand well in certain scenarios where sometimes you're stunned into silence, or sometimes you say, let me not go into conflict right now because I, I don't feel like I can actually uh, stand it or I have the emotional fortitude um, and that is the experience of many of us um, just people and also black and brown people in America and I that is the that is the mode that I wanted to assume in, in terms of Darren's narrative at that point of showing how sometimes it's just taken it until I make it take it until I make it but it that line of it is constantly being pushed and pushed and pushed
0: mm-hmm. yeah. basically when Dan Freeman starts his revolution, mm-hmm. it's been in, in the works and it just seems to be working. And for, for Darren, for Buck, his revolution has a much harder time mm-hmm. getting off the, the ground. And I just think that there is something
1: about
0: what we were afraid of in the late 60s versus what we're afraid of now.
1: Most definitely, and, and I'd say um, you're absolutely right. It was harder for Darren to spark his revolution. And the past um, year, we've seen um, a reigniting of passion and fervor for the fight for progress, right? Um, we have many people that were marching in the streets after the execution of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Elijah McClain. all of these people, the list goes on and on, Ahmaud Arbery. Um, and we haven't seen that in a while. And that's why many people do feel hopeful and I feel hopeful too, but I have many other thoughts, but we've digressed enough, so I'm not gonna get into them. But what I will say is that Black Buck does take time, does, excuse me, take place at a certain time. It takes place in a certain a couple of years, and sometimes the reader can get that, even though I don't call it out explicitly. And I'll say it, it took place right in the 2010s, right, to just keep it a little bit vague for those who haven't read the book. And um, while we had Eric Garner, and uh, Michael Brown, Tamir Rice, and so many other um, unarmed black, Sandra Bland, um, unarmed black and brown people being murdered um, and people were taken to the streets. It wasn't in the same way that we saw this year. But going back to your point, Christopher, in the 60s, it was much easier. It was like this powder keg, right? Where one thing, people were, it was going wild. It'd go up immediately, right? And we are not as susceptible, and maybe it's a good thing or a bad thing, um, as being incensed about injustices, and I'm talking about prior to 2020. Now it's something a little bit different. <laughs> so for Darren, it was difficult for him to start his revolution. First off, because of that, like the the political and social environment that we're living in today, and secondly, because he didn't have the same vision as Dan Freeman. He didn't know Darren. It's very important, and I say it in the I say it in my pitch, and it's somewhat misleading, but People are going to have to deconstruct it and read the book. I say that Darren um, realizes he doesn't want to be the only token and he hatches this plot, right? He does hatch a plot, but he had to be pushed into it. Mm -hmm. It, It's somewhat in line with him being this anti-hero. He is not MLK. He's not Malcolm X, even though funnily enough, right? People say, Hey, do you know you look like these people? (laughs) Um, But he is not one of these people. He's not Dan Freeman who said, I'm going to change the world. He had it pushed on him. So Darren's lack of vision, Darren's lack of feeling as though um, he had a part to play in this fight for progress also made it that more difficult for him to uh, begin his revolution. He didn't have the vision and we see him stumbling and sometimes flailing, especially when he begins this group and he's trying to train these people. Some of these ways are counterproductive, right? And don't actually that aren't in line of, of training people, but, uh, he eventually finds his footing with the help of so many other people.
0: It's one of the most comedic parts of the book is his early um, bits of training his new people, his happy campers, um, and and the ways that he's like, you have to do this. If you can sell, you can get yourself out of this situation. <laughs> yeah. And the whole time, I mean, it, that is some of the most tense parts. It's funny and it's incredibly tense.
2: Yeah, <laughs> sure. Yeah. I love that both of these books felt hopeful in a way, Mm. because at the end of both of them, and I don't, I don't think that this is a spoiler for readers who haven't read either of them, but the, the movements expand beyond their founders Mm. in a way that their founders both seem, um, I mean, it, it it floored me the end of Spooky Sat by the Door when Dan's just kind of like, yep, all right, you all get out. And what's and he just like sits down and has a drink and it's yep. like it's such a cinematic like ending. <laughs> of oh yeah. But similarly, it, at the end of Black Buck, as Darren is like, you know, uh, I these things happened to me, and that's not what's important. What's important is that everybody else who is out there continuing to propagate. It just, it felt very necessary almost like the Mm -hmm. reminder not just about the individual struggle and sort of we as a society like we often lionize the person who founded the thing the the people who are at the forefront of the movement and mateo a little bit of what you were saying about how the last year has seen this reignition of a movement it doesn't feel like there's necessarily a single person or a couple Mm -hmm. of people at the front of the movement it feels like it's in, in the most positive way, faceless. or yes. are the faces who we, who we put up and we recognize and who we are marching for, but there's no, I don't know, it feels like it's harder to stomp it out. You can't stomp mm. out progress if you can't take out the one person at the top of the thing.
1: Yeah, the, the head of the snake and, and Drew, I mean, I have two or three responses to that. One is that you hit the nail on the head. Um, what Darren did was bigger than him, and that's why it was so pivotal, excuse me, pivotal um, and impactful, um, even though by the end of the book, we don't know how long lived that'll be. We don't know how long lived the change will be, right? We don't know the reverberations of, of what Darren and so many other people did. It wasn't just Darren, right? Um, but it was bigger than him. And uh, for me, when I was working at a startup, I remember the first time I went on vacation, uh, I went to Paris with my then girlfriend and I was on email nonstop. And before I left though, someone said, listen, you know if you've done your job, if your team and the managers below you can function without you being there. Mm. So it's, it's the same thing in terms of these revolutions. The second thing I'll say is that, again, going back to reading reviews, and even this morning, one of my, one of my aunts texted me saying I just finished your book and that ending wiped me out. Many people don't like the ending. Many people look at the ending as not being hopeful. They want it to end in a different way. Mm. Where, and, and what I think, um, I, I was about to say what they're missing, but I don't want to say anyone's missing anything because your read is your read and it's complete um, on your own. Right. But uh, I had the same thought that you did, Drew, that the book was ending on a hopeful note because all of this lives beyond Darren then Buck. And not only that, but he finally gets to a place where for the first time in, in a couple of years, he's at peace despite mm. everything that had happened and not just happened to him, but also that he did. It's very important for me to say that. Yeah.
2: Darren mm-hmm. is not a
1: victim in this scenario where just things happened to him. He did things, good and bad, um, or for better or for worse. So um, those are the two things that that come to mind in terms of what you just brought up in terms of the ending, Drew. Um, I do think that it's hopeful and I, I do think that any movement that is headless or, or lives beyond the head of one person um, isn't unstoppable, but, but is harder to stop.
2: Mm.
0: Yeah. 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 Well, I'm so glad you recommended Spooky Stop by the Door. It was a fantastic reading experience and it was totally surreal to be listening to this book uh, while I was watching what was going on uh, in the Capitol last week. It was just like, I don't know. It was very powerful. But we should also talk about other things, other books that we recommend and get to that part.
2: We read some pretty cool books. We recommend you take a look. Yeah.
0: Drew, do you want to start recommending things?
2: Yeah, Okay. Um, I have two books. Uh, one of them is one of my favorite books from last year, uh, a book called Homeland Elegies by Ayad Akhtar. Um, I talked about this ages ago when I picked up the book. Uh, I know Ayad is a playwright. Um, Disgraced is a fucking astoundingly good piece of theater. And this book totally upends everything that I've ever experienced with auto fiction. Like Mm -hmm. the main character is a Pulitzer prize winning playwright. The details of the main character's life are similar to Iod's. um, But there are pieces, like he is very clear that it's a novel and the, the blurring of the line, I don't know. It just feels more, um, Uncertain in a sort of like quantum way than something like a Ben Lerner novel or the Carl of kosgard books like there's something about the way that um Iod wrote this book that you you really like I, and and some of it again might be because I know his work and worked in the theater and so have experienced um like as he's talking about theaters that he's working on, I'm like, oh, they're right. This has got to be that production. But then I'm like, oh, but does it? I don't know. It just, I was living in that space of like, is this real? Did he have syphilis? And did he write about it? What, and like that, that uncertainty, I just, it's been so long since I've experienced that in a novel. And it says these amazing things about the immigrant experience, about America in, it's one of the first um like Trump era books that I feel like will that that directly addresses Trump that I feel like will last in mm-hmm. a way. I feel like there were so many books that came out right away that were like, oh, we're gonna try to look, it's this bullying strongman or whatever. And this there's just something about it. Um I really, really loved it. If and I can't think of anything to um compare it to, which is also mm-hmm. to me a mark of like truly an exceptional read. The other one is a read that I picked up a couple of years ago and I was thinking about it as I was reading, um, Sam Greenlee's book Oreo by Fran Ross, which we read, I read for the tournament of books a couple of years ago, even though that was a book that came out, I believe in the early seventies, it went out of print and then came back into print. It was sort of this, this moment of rediscovery, um, and it's another like it is satirical Fran Ross wrote for Richard Pryor for a while like she was very very funny but it also isn't it isn't meant to be a satire necessarily it's it's that thing of like real life is absurd and funny and has satirical elements and like you kind of have to figure out what that line is for yourself as a as a reader and as a consumer hmm. um and I don't know if if you haven't if you've listened to the show and you haven't picked that book up, I recommend it. I think it's one of the funniest books I've read in a long time. Mm. Um, yeah, so those are my two. Matteo, how about you?
1: Oof! Um, wow. So Oreo has popped up in my life many times, um, but I actually haven't read it yet. Mm. Um, that's a book on my on my list. I have a, a list, an ever growing list of, of books to to read, and Oreo is sometimes getting bumped up and then 10 more go above it. But <laughs> yeah. how, your, your description, I'm sold. Um, <laughs> so I need to read that ASAP. And <laughs> um, Homeland Elegy, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I haven't read it, but that was a book that was being hyped up a lot. And I said, let me see if it finds its way back to me mm. for me to read it. And I'm not even ashamed to say, I hadn't even really read the description of it just because it was it was being so it was just out there so much. Yeah. And I'm also not ashamed to say I I sort of mixed it together in my head with Hillbilly Elegy. <laughs> so I was like, "Hold on. I was like, <laughs> what? like I know there are different novels, but you know, uh, I'm sort of no no shade, but I'm sort of good on Hillbilly Elegy, you know." Yeah. So <laughs> um, yeah, I'll come back to it. But now that you're telling me it's about a playwright, I'm infinitely more interested. Um, in that world because that isn't my world. Even though, as I said earlier on, I, I've been to a lot of plays.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so I'm gonna look into uh, that one and then bump Oreo up on my list, thank you. Um, especially when he said friend Ross wrote for Richard Pryor. Richard Pryor is one of my biggest inspirations. Um, I was about to say something, somewhat inappropriate. But <laughs> uh, he's someone who fell into addiction, just like going back yeah. to the beginning, right? And Richard Pryor was extremely rich and he fell into addiction and he had no issues talking about it. So for me, um, How Much of These Hills is Gold? I loved Ooh, that book. I yeah. see Pam Zhang from this last year. And um, wow, the writing was people say, oh, the writing was beautiful and incredible. It was, but for me, what I enjoyed most about it is that it was sparse. Like it matched the environment Mm -hmm. of the Western frontier of the late 1880s and the gold rush. It may may have been, excuse me, it was like 1840. The book spans time, it jumps time. But uh, the 1840s to like 60s, it matched her description of that frontier and how just barren and hard it was to exist there. It is a book about immigrants as well as you were discussing drew what it means to be the only one Mm -hmm. as well being the resident other gold. And again, keeping in line with uh, keeping it honest, there was a second when I had to Google whether there were tigers Roaming the western coast of the United States because <laughs> C Pam Jang just made it seem so real that I was like, wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> People them somehow from parts of Asia and then they populated and then they were killed off like bison. Um, so that <laughs> book was just out of this world. Another that I recommend, <clears throat> and it's um it's a guilty favorite. And I say guilty favorite because there are a lot of bad things that happen in the book and a lot of bad things that this protagonist does to women in particular right that that i don't agree or condone and this book is pimp by iceberg slim Hmm. and um the reason why i enjoyed it and i still enjoy it and recommend it so much is that it is a masterclass in voice number one and number two iceberg slim this is uh very much so some auto-fiction because he was a pimp. He does not try to prop himself or excuse me, this narrator um, who is inspired by himself up in the same way that Black Buck doesn't look to um, prop up its narrator. Mm -hmm. Um, He is unflinchingly honest about um, what pimps do and what they subject women to and the psychological warfare. Um, And it does also show the resiliency of women but again, it's a guilty read because it's not an easy read, um, but it is still one that I am for the better uh, of having read it. So there, there's Pimp, there's How Much of These Hills is Gold. There is uh, Black Docker. If you want to talk about books that are hard to get, Black Docker, you got to go to like A a Books, and they they have a couple, but it's by Usman Senben, who was actually the father of African cinema. Hmm. And Usman Senben, yeah, he, he didn't just write a novel, Black Docker. He had written many books, but he'd also uh, created, excuse me, shot and directed many films that introduced cinema to Africa. He was Senegalese and his, his works um, were unabashedly uh, African and, and specifically Senegalese. Um, his, his, uh, his characters in these works weren't only speaking French, which was which was the colonial power at the time, but they were speaking Wolof, right? Which was um, yeah. his native tongue. And he has this, uh, this movie called black girl or let noire. Um, I believe in French and my God, I mean, I'm not going to say anything about it. Just, just try to find it. I Listen, I had to pirate it, whatever. I, pirate <laughs> it. I couldn't find it anywhere. And it's not a long film, but wow. I was just floored. So the black docker though is about um, a black, dock worker in Marseille and what it was like in that time of, again, I, I'm not going to get this right, but either like the fifties or the sixties um, of being black and being a laborer in France and his relations with uh, communism and with the Arab workers as well. Um, and it was just, it was wild. And oh, man, this just goes on and on. Let me, let me give one last one. Mm-hmm the angry ones. This is one that to be honest, I'm not as guilty for recommending, <laughs> but there are things that I take issue with in it. You know, um, the angry ones by John A. Williams, John A. Williams is one of my favorite writers whom I was only introduced to a couple of years ago. And the angry ones is about a black man who is the only one working at this like absurd uh, publisher that they're basically scamming people you know how sometimes you have these publishers or agents that are scamming people mm-hmm. this this publisher is scamming people but this character is the only black man there and he discusses what it's like um for him to be working in in publishing and to um be uh, uh, accruing some money or needing or money xyz and what i didn't vibe with and what i disliked was him using uh, a derogatory slur for queer people, a de- derogatory slur for queer people, the F word. And um, people take issue with some words in my book. I was very intentional about every word in my book, especially words that are derogatory and words that I don't use. And I've seen it on Book Scram of people taking issue. And that's okay, you can take issue, uh, but at the same time, who's saying those words? Mm -hmm. right it's it's very important because i didn't want to write those words out because people use them and worse words and i didn't want to write those types of people out of the narrative but Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean that 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 you're going to agree with um my decision to do so and i don't and john a williams doesn't have to agree with me he's he's passed now but he doesn't have to agree with me disagreeing with him using that word but it just felt like more so one of those words that were indicative of the times and yeah. you say, Hey, this is what they said in the times, but it, it didn't feel, um, like it served a greater purpose. Maybe it did from his perspective. I'm not sure, but yeah, the angry ones loved that. And let me stop there because pff, we could go for hours. <laughs> uh, we got deep real quick. These aren't just wrecks, man. That's a, good, that's a good list.
0: Yeah, definitely.
1: All right, Christopher, take us home.
0: Uh, I'm going to recommend just one book. It came out at the beginning of the year, um, Outlawed by Anna North. It's super... I, I love westerns, um, movies and novels. So Outlawed is about a woman who is trying to bear a child for her husband and is unsuccessful. It's in, written um, set in 1894. And when she's unsuccessful, apparently that at the time was a sign of witchcraft that they that she if she's barren and someone else is barren uh, next door, she might get tried for that other person not being able to Jeez. have a child. And so this woman decides to leave and ends up um, joining a convent, and when she doesn't fit in with the convent, she joins the Hole in the Wall gang, which Anna North reimagines as a group of women and gender nonconforming and gender queer people. And it's just so exciting and strange and fun, and a completely different understanding of the West than I've ever read before. Nice. And I also recommend Black Buck. Um, thank you yeah. so so much for coming on the show, Mateo. We, I mean, it's the an incredible book. Yeah, and um, it's 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 unlike anything. It's so earnest. You were saying that earnestness is. Mm um in your voice and it's definitely in the voice of the of of the book too Um, yeah
1: thank you yeah thank you for reading it and thank you for this conversation this was fun and unlike actually any of the other 30 interviews I've had just with like (laughs) two young men who love literature and uh we could talk about it deeply um those other interviews are great too and they're different but what I love most is just new and different scenarios and new different ways to not just talk about black buck but also literature so thank you for your time and this uh, coffee drink that got me wired now I'm a little, <laughs> for listeners now I'm a little chiller now right I'm not <laughs> <sitting on this. laughs>
0: um, the listeners at home you can go to patreon.com smdb if you want to pay us money um, you can also go to iTunes and give us a review we really appreciate when you do that and go to your local independent bookstore and pick up Black Buck. It is a total experience.
2: And you know what? While you're there, also ask them about The Spook Who Sat By The Door by Sam Greenley, because mm. as we have seen in the past, the only way that you get good books back into print is by just asking literally anybody who's related to the book industry until finally somebody gives in. Yeah, that's, that's true. Right. <laughs>
0: exactly.